Hey, everyone. Uh, just checking that we're live now. A few moments where we thought we were live, but we weren't in fact yes. live. But okay, we are good. live. There, there were a few moments there where we thought we were live, and we were literally talking for about four minutes, uh, and then we realized we weren't live. Uh, so welcome. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Uh, those of you who have been with us for a couple of these will have recognized one thing right off the bat, which is that Kendall is not Izzy. Uh, Izzy normally joins us for these. Izzy's a real star at this stuff, but is on holiday right now and is in Singapore, so there's really no way she could have made this. Uh, but instead, we have Kendall. Kendall is second best, but it's a very close second. Thank Kendall. you. Um, nice to be here. Excited to be second best. Missing Izzy. Fantastic. Um, but the format is exactly the same, which is we're going to talk a little bit about industry insights, what we've heard from uh, sustainability professionals in the companies that we engage with. And then we're also going to talk through a few of the questions that we've been sent through. Questions tend to be either DM'd to me on LinkedIn or emailed through to me or a member of the team. Uh, but we also get questions just in the course of our ordinary conversations with sustainability teams. So we factor those in here as well. Um, just to maybe kick us off, what's fresh in my mind is we had an event several days ago that we hosted where we brought together about 50 sustainability professionals from the food space, representing around 450 million tons of greenhouse gas emissions globally. Uh, I think that's uh, the size of a G20 economy, roughly, in emissions, big chunk of the food industry. It was really fantastic to spend about seven hours over the course of the day with them, talking through some of the big challenges facing them today. Big thank you to everyone who came. For anyone who didn't, let me know if you're interested in joining the next one. Um, and one of the things that really came out for me is that it's supplier engagement season. Uh, companies are either starting to engage suppliers in sustainability data, or they are being engaged by customers in sustainability data, or they are thinking about these things and how they'll get started. And one of the under-addressed parts of this is contractual terms. That'll sound a bit weird, but we've started to get asked by companies that we work with how they should think about contracting with their suppliers, and should they think differently, approach the problem differently, so as to incentivize uh, supplier collaboration and de-risk themselves. And so, there are, I think this is a really interesting and important challenge, and I actually don't think enough companies do enough thinking on this. We have some strong opinions. We have strong opinions on most things. And I tend to uh, look for a few things in these sorts of terms. So the terms that you put into your supplier agreements, I would think about one, uh, how do you incentivize the sharing of data and how do you make it transparent what that data is going to be used for? So we've actually, you know, we've prepared articles as well to embed within these contracts. And so the first thing I think about is make it clear that you will not immediately be using this data for anything other than your own greenhouse gas inventory. But at some point, it may well be the case that sustainability performance plays into the uh, broader commercial agreement that you might have with suppliers, which means that at some point you might either give more volume to certain suppliers or less volume. Uh, or longer-term contracts, uh, or some element of pricing differential. You want to reserve the right to do these things. You don't want to make it explicit that you're doing them right now. The second thing that uh, I would suggest thinking about is how do you have some element of target matching 
because what you don't want to do is you don't want to be left holding the liability for your targets where you've set a target of let's say a 30% emissions reduction by 2030. Most of that sits in your supply chain, but no one in your supply chain has actually matched your commitments or you don't have enough coverage in your supply chain of suppliers matching those commitments. That ends up being a liability that you as a business are holding then. And what you actually want to do is push that liability uh, upstream into your supply chain. And so the, the second piece that you want to think about in those supplier agreement clauses is how do you have some element of incentivization, encouragement, nudging to get the supplier to have uh, targets that are either matching or in the same ballpark as your own. Uh, the third piece, and this one I think has really not been thought about enough, even in the context of a space that is being underthought about, is how do you um, limit carbon reduction value leakage from the supply chain? Uh, that's a mouthful, but let me say it a different way. If you think about, uh, let's say, removals or reductions happening elsewhere in your supply chain, there are a number of companies in your supply chain that are already looking at ways to monetize that. I know this because we're speaking with some of them. And what they're looking at is if they, let's say, use their, the, the potential of their soil, if it's a farming business, to, let's say, uh, remove some of, you know, some of the, the sort of, uh, to, have, to basically have a removal-based revenue stream, could they monetize that by generating an offset and selling the offset into a third-party platform or to a buyer outside the value chain? The impact of this is that you kind of risk having a lot of the emissions reductions or removals that you might be relying on when setting your targets. You might have a lot of those actually being sold externally, which means that the regenerative farming business that you're buying from might actually look like a coal mine in your greenhouse gas inventory because all of the reductions and removals have been monetized and sold elsewhere. I think this is like a, an interesting sort of gray area that's kind of you know, not really regulated or covered for. I expect standards will evolve to fill this gap, but for the, the time being, what we're suggesting is that all of our you know, customers and companies that we engage with start thinking about contractual terms as a way to minimize that value leakage. So this is some of the stuff that uh, we're thinking about right now, and that's sort of top of mind for some of the companies we're speaking with. Nice, very good scene setting. Um, so we've got a list of questions that we've mostly pulled from the event that Seth mentioned last week. As always, if you have any questions that you want to ask live, just drop them down below, I think it is, um, and we'll prioritize those ones. But I've got most of these questions actually centered around pain. Um, big theme in the event last week was the pains that sustainability professionals are experiencing. Um, and the first I guess, topic that was really pertinent throughout the day is everyone's really embarrassed about their data. Everyone thinks that they, their data is the absolute worst data. Um, obviously, if everyone thinks this, it can't be true. But I was interested, and the, the question I've kind of pulled together is, what is the actual average quality of emissions data today? And when should a company actually be worried? You know, this is one of those jokes that you make so often that it ceases to be funny when you say it, but literally every company, almost every company that I've engaged with in a you know commercial discussion where we're trying to come in and help them with these problems, they always say our data is really bad. To just give a sense of scale, uh, I must have spoken with maybe a hundred sustainability teams this year, and 
only one of them told me their data was in decent shape. The others pretty much all had some element of like this data is really bad. A few of them have actually been embarrassed and not wanted to not wanted to actually show us samples and, and so on. Um, and so, yeah, I think the first thing is just a note of comfort that look at this, everyone's in the same boat. Um, and then the second thing is that because everyone's in the same boat, there is stuff that can help with this. But let me make it very specific. One of the areas that people often think is a really, really poor, weak data environment within their business is energy data. I don't talk a lot about energy data generally because it's usually a very small part of the greenhouse gas inventory. Scope 2, for instance, is usually a very small part, a few percentage points for most of our, our customers. But um, let's take that as an example. So with energy invoices, most businesses that are global in nature will have many different energy suppliers. In the UK, that could range from, let's say, one to maybe 60 or 70. Probably for most UK businesses, you're actually pretty decent in that space because it's a very consolidated energy market. And so most UK-based businesses will only have maybe four, five, six, a dozen energy suppliers that they're using. If you're based in Italy or you're based in Australia, that number can actually be much higher. Um, and so we have some companies that we engage with that have maybe 80 different structures for energy invoices around the world. And so they have all these different structures coming in and they have people trying to like manually convert that data into some structured format. And that makes them feel that their data is in really bad shape. But actually, I would say one, like that's again, that's that's normal. That's that's just how the landscape looks. Any business that's global will have that problem. Businesses that are entirely based in some fragmented environments will have that problem always. Secondly, there are tools that help with this. We build tools that help with this. So our customers can actually, you know, that problem just literally disappears. I don't want to go into technical details or anything, but that problem basically disappears. But there are also other tools that you can use that will basically take that data and strip it out and make it tabular and neatly structured. And so, you know, there's nothing to be worried about. There's nothing to be uh, concerned about. The only thing I would say is that what's important is not is your data really good quality or really bad quality, but uh, can you at least start to map it out and say, here are all the different types of data that I'm going to be needing. Here's where it sits. This is really good. It's neatly structured, tabular data, and therefore I can do lots of stuff with it. This is really bad. Uh, and at the other end of the spectrum, for let's say a neatly structured, you know, regular sort of tabular data set might be uh, a, a photo of a receipt, for instance, which is probably about as bad as it gets in the places that we've seen. And, and you know, it's fine. And you just have to kind of understand where what sits. And then there are tools that can help you standardize this. So that's the first thing I would say, I think. And if you were to actually throw a benchmark out there, say for like data sources, just to give people a tangible number to grasp onto. Yeah, we're very data source oriented. So when we come in to work with a business, we usually want to understand as part of the technical needs analysis, how many data sources are we going to be working with? Mm -hmm. And just to give you an example, for a large multi-billion dollar revenue business, uh, we might be looking at, let's say, 20 or 30 different data sources, maybe 40, 50 kind of unique data structures or sources for a very large, like 20, 30 billion dollar revenue global business. Um, for a smaller business, let's say that it's uh, just, you know, fully based in one country, it does one thing, it has a very few sites, maybe, you know, let's say a manufacturing business with a few sites, that number might be 10 or 15. 
uh, unique sort of data structures and data sources that we need to work with. Um, and that's usually because, you know, again, in some cases, they'll be using some tools to standardize a lot of these different structured invoices that sit behind things. Uh, the, the worst we found is probably like 150 different data structures and data sources. Um, and that's uniquely bad or uniquely difficult from our perspective. But just to give you an example of the type of business that that is, and that probably won't be you, uh, that business is, is has grown up as an aggregation of many other businesses. It's it's owned by uh, you know private equity, and the strategy has been to sort of consolidate that part of the market and bolt on many smaller businesses, which means that everything is inherently different because you're you're just grouping together lots of small companies. Even there, there are ways to make this a lot easier and simpler. So. You know, I, I'd say the first part of solving the problem is to understand what it is and what the scale of it is. Your data is probably not as bad as you're afraid of relative to others. Nice word of comfort. Um, I'm going to move us on to the next topic because I'm aware of time. Um, I think the other thing that we've been hearing a lot is, especially from larger companies, is feeling under-resourced. So we all know, obviously, sustainability teams can come in all shapes and sizes. We're still seeing a lot of cases of those, like, one man or woman sustainability teams. Um, so the question I have sketched out for you here is when should a small team be looking to add additional headcount? And then I'd really like you to narrow in on what roles should be prioritized in that. Yeah, these are probably actually two questions. So let me take the first part, which is um, when should you look to add on resource? And then let's cover the second bit, which is what type of resource do you need? In terms of when you should look to add on resource, I would follow this simple sort of almost two or three step approach of filtration, where step one is understand whether the task that you're looking for someone to do needs to be done at all. Is it possible for you to just remove the task altogether? The you know An example of that is, let's say you have a lot of people doing manual data entry and as actually, you know, that, that, that data that they're entering can just be reduced in total, the frequency can be reduced, or they're already entering that data somewhere else. And so you don't need them to do it twice. This happens actually quite a lot. Uh, that sort of thing, you can just remove the work element. And I have yet to find a business that has actually removed all of that redundant work before they start looking to automate or hire more people. So the first thing is, does the work need to be done at all? The second thing is, if it needs to be done, does it need to be done by a human being? And so I would look at, is this something that is a repeatable task? It is a relatively low complexity task, maybe, and it's relatively easy for you to find a solution that can automate this. Again, you know, scraping PDFs is one example. There are tools out there that can scrape PDFs. They will get better and better. And actually, that can reduce a surprising amount of the workload and time for you just to use that. You don't need to hire someone, uh, you know, at any kind of cost to do manual data entry of that sort of stuff. Again, seems like a bizarre example to most, but honestly, there are many companies that actually have human beings doing this, and they don't need to be. The third piece is okay, fine. The task needs to be done, and the task can't be automated. And often, this is going to maybe be, maybe let's see a higher order of task, more strategic thinking, more stakeholder management, that sort of stuff. So you need a person for it. And then when you need a person, I would still apply a couple of other lenses, which is, 
is it possible for you to upskill someone already elsewhere in the team? Is it possible for you to coach or train someone in a different team so that you don't need a net new person? And so I would sort of follow all of these rules first before you look to add on a new person into the team. Uh, and I'm saying this because every business is cost conscious right now. And, you know, you, you can probably have your resources go further elsewhere. So that's the first part around when should you think about hiring more people? Uh, the second part, which is uh, what type of skills or what type of people should you look for? I would really think about where are you strong in the team and where are you uh, lighter or weaker? Let me give uh, two examples, one of which I'll give um, from a sort of sustainability lens and one is a little more general based on some personal experiences in our company as well. Uh, from a sustainability lens, what I find is that most sustainability teams are light on people who get data architecture and data systems. And these sound heavy and complicated. And again, going back to the, the people that we had in the room several days ago, honestly, out of the, the 50 plus sustainability professionals, I think probably five or six or 10 had worked extensively in Excel before and had used pivot tables and so on. And you know that's fine because they've obviously done other things that are highly valuable, but they need to have they need to have that skill set covered. And that's almost like a very basic level that I'm talking about. What's even more valuable is if they can get people who understand what the architecture of the system that they're setting up should look like, how they should engage with the IT team and the business, how they should be engaged with information and data flow in the business, what's possible, what isn't possible. Uh, all these things I think are underweighted. And so actually a really effective lateral shift within the business can often be bringing someone in from IT. And actually one of the companies that we know well brought in a sort of senior IT leader into a sustainability role, leading on the sustainability data side. And that person is super effective in their role because they've learned the sustainability stuff and they already had another skill set, and they've married the two together in a really powerful combination. And I actually think it's often easier to get someone with a good IT background to think from a sustainability lens and often they might have a personal interest and excitement in the topic rather than having it the other way around. And just taking our business, for instance, um, in our business, I, I have worked in sustainability for a long time. I, I, I know many different aspects of this topic, some in more depth than others, but really I'm new to the whole data space. And so Toby in our business who leads our kind of data function and data capabilities Toby is the equivalent person on that side of the fence, and Toby has been in the data space for 20 years. And Toby's superpower that he's really exceptional at is, is architecture, actually. It's like, how should the system look and work and what feeds into what? And it would be almost impossible for me to, to get that level of depth. And so that's the kind of skill that, you, that at least in our business, we needed to have. And I would think the same way in a sustainability team as well. Uh, one skill set that I think is often overrepresented in, in sustainability teams is good communicators. Good communicators, by the way, are rare in general uh, and not to be scoffed at. But in sustainability teams, because sustainability is such a narrative-heavy topic, we often over-index on getting people who can tell the story, uh, whereas actually, like, how many of those do you need in the business? Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting point. So, like underweighted on some of the, the harder skills there. 
and a big shout out to Toby. I wouldn't even say harder skills, right? I think both skills are hard. Mm. I think that it's that you want the right balance within. You need people, you know, the same way that you need people who can be big picture, but you also need people who can be detailed. Uh, you need people who can be kind of, you know, spontaneous and be the problem solvers in a pinch where something's going wrong. But then you also need people who are structured and can manage good processes. In the same way, I think you need a balance of people within that sustainability team. Mm -hmm. And so you need to be able to look for how are you crafting a team that can cover all the bases. And so in those bases, you kind of, you definitely need to have someone who's a good, like tech, techn technical systems thinker, because you're going to be working with a lot of data, uh, supply chain, internal, et cetera. You definitely need a good communicator. You definitely need someone who can be kind of covering the base in terms of strategy and like, how are you actually thinking for the long term? You need people who can be innovators on the product side. Like there's a lot of skill sets you need. And I think too often we find someone who's like a sustainability generalist, and then we hire up like 10 of those in the team in a 11 person team. And that I think doesn't work so well. If we take it back to headcount for a second, is there a number that you would, a guiding principle you would put on actually how many people how many of those roles that you've just described can be done by one person, two person, can one person do many of them? Yeah, a headcount is a word I try never to use, ever. <laughs> but let's let's roll with it. Um, the rough benchmark rule of thumb, which means that it is probably wrong for most individual companies and right in average, uh, the rough benchmark number that we've seen is around 1.5-ish. Uh, people per billion dollars of revenue. And so you can kind of scale that up or down roughly it holds more or less true in most businesses that I've sort of seen. Um, and, and that's kind of not necessarily, you know, obviously 1.5 is, is a weird number, but it's, it's, it's sort of the sum total of the different people that are working on this in a meaningful, consistent way. And so usually let's say you have a smaller business, half a billion dollars revenue or so might be a simple business. Again, one country, you know, fewer facilities, uh, you'll have someone who is focusing on this and maybe, you know, one other task. And then you'll have a couple of people doing this as a part-time gig by, by this, I mean, data gathering, uh, procurement conversations with, with members of the supply chain, running the occasional workshop, uh, compiling the ESG report, that sort of thing. Um, there's an element of like how ambitious you want to be as well, because if that's the number of people you have, you can probably you can probably do whatever you need to do to be like a fast follower on the change being led by others. If you want to be a real driver of sustainability change and your business is like a sustainability native or a, you know, a sustainability champion and you're building new business models and new product lines, then obviously this rule won't apply. Um, I've also seen both sides of that benchmark. So I've seen companies that maybe at $10 billion revenue have 200 people in the, in the broader sustainability ecosystem within the company. I think that can be often too much and, and you lose sight of what everyone is doing and there's not a lot of cohesion uh, and there's not a lot of efficiency. At the same time, I've seen situations where there's like, you know, in, the, in a business of the same size, $10 billion revenue, you might have two people really struggling to get their arms around the problem and just keeping their heads above water on like reporting requirements. Makes sense. I think we have time to squeeze one more question. And this is one that we actually had submitted. Um, 
So this is a question on where a sustainability team should sit. So I'll read it out verbatim. What is the best way to set up a sustainability team? Should it be an independent function or should it sit within other functions like procurement? It's a good question. And I see all sorts and all flavors of this. I think the model that I find to be the most effective is a small sustainability function that is independent. And by small, I mean small relative to other functions in the business. It might even be one of the smallest functions in the business, but it's independent. And the reason that it's independent is because you need sustainability to be a CEO agenda item if it's going to actually drive real change. And if you tuck it away beneath the function, then it's always competing to be on the agenda of the person leading that function. And then maybe it makes its way onto the CEO agenda. Whereas actually, if it's an independent function and the leader is really reporting directly into the CEO, then it can at least have a decent shot at staying on the agenda of the CEO and on the agenda of the board. And I think that that's necessary if you're going to achieve sustained transformative change in any aspect of a business, not just sustainability, true for digital, true for cost, true for any big transformation program. Uh, so I think independence is key. At the same time, that function should be liaising very closely with other functions. And you should have people in those other functions that are aligned to sustainability and working closely with sustainability. So for instance, there should be people in the procurement function uh, that that engage regularly with the sustainability team or the sustainability function and understand what to look for and how to act. One really nice example, actually, there's a logistics company I know. It's about um, billion dollar revenue plus, I think, plus minus, uh, and a real leader in this space, actually. And there, the, uh, the head of sustainability and the head of procurement have a really solid, strong relationship. And the head of procurement actually in any other business might well be a sustainability leader because uh, they are, she, is, um, she, she really gets the topic. Like she gets it at a level of depth. I think she's also done specialized training courses in this as well. And she always impresses me with the depth of her understanding, not just in the topic, but also how to actually drive change in that business and make change happen from a sustainability perspective, which means that they work really well together and that's just a, you know, the, the sustainability leader is also amazing, but the combination of the two is a real powerhouse uh, where they're mutually reinforcing and they're finding new business models that work from a sustainability angle and work for revenue. And I think there's just something really, really magical in that. I'm sure that's a setup a lot of people wish, wish they had. To be honest, there are honestly both amazing individuals. <laughs> so this might be special, but yeah, I think that's that's a fantastic combination. And are there any other functions beyond procurement? Because we've only really touched on procurement here. If sustainability is its independent function, what other functions should sustainability be interfacing with on a regular basis? So there are a few obvious ones. The obvious one is ops. Yeah. Uh, and there's another obvious one less exciting in some ways, but marketing and comms is the traditional one. So a lot of sustainability leaders have actually moved out of marketing and comms into sustainability. We see a bunch that have dual role titles. Obviously it's important. There's a narrative element and there's a how do you tell the story element. But then if you think about how do you actually manage to get change done inside the business, you're probably thinking ops or you're thinking procurement or supply chain. 
Yeah, the marketing piece is important as well because one thing from the event last week was a real fear of greenwashing and not having a strong enough relationship with the marketing team. Um, yeah, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, I think, yeah, that's, that's totally fair. And I think it also depends, it'll vary a little business to business. So if you're a consumer-oriented business, then obviously marketing becomes super important to how you tell the story. Um, I think there's something around what is the cadence of interactions that you need between functions. And so if you think about procurement and ops, I think that in both of these elements, there's, a, there's, a, there's this thing about sustainability needs to be an everyday thing where operations and procurement and supply chain need to factor sustainability into almost everything that they're doing uh, for it to actually move the needle. With marketing and comms, I think it can be a little more of a, I'm not saying there's a steady cadence to it, but I think there is a, a slightly, in some ways, slightly less predictable kind of interaction workflow, but also a slightly lower frequency, I would say, but I, I could be wrong there. That's just my impression. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Okay, um, we've got a few minutes over, but we started a few minutes late, so I think I'll wrap us up there. This will, the audio of this will go on our podcast if you want to refer back to anything. Um, any closing thoughts? No, uh, just, uh, you know, the, the, the old refrain, live long and prosper. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, honestly, I think it's been, been, been great covering a few of the, the, the topics that were top of mind for us and for companies we speak with. Uh, please keep them coming. If there's a question that you'd like to have answered, please message me, uh, you know, drop us a note, whatever way, you, wherever you find us. Uh, I'm fairly active on LinkedIn. Uh, and so, you know, feel free to sort of follow there if you, if you like what we're saying. Um, and otherwise, wish you all the best in your sustainability journey for the weeks ahead.